Can we pray together? Father, um, I love that the, the verse that Liz read said, your ways are not our ways. That's a tough lesson to learn, and we spend our entire lives attempting to internalize that. That your ways are perfect, but they are not our ways. Such as cold, rainy winter days we don't like, but yet they are a part of your good creation. And even they have something to teach us. Perhaps we wouldn't understand spring if we didn't walk through winter. Lord, as you establish this community, as you plant the roots of Hope Brooklyn deep into this city, would you constantly remind us that your ways are not our ways. Your ways are far better. And would you give us open hands, open eyes, open hearts to hear from you, to experience you, to love and serve one another. And Jesus, it's because you're alive today that we pray and gather it all. And it's in your name, amen. Well, welcome again to Hope Brooklyn. My name is Russell, I'm one of the pastors. If this is your first time, like Nathan said, a special welcome for you. Uh, you actually came at a really exciting time uh, in our church's life. We are a church plant and we are in the preview season. And amongst the, the staff learning what it is to lead a church, it's also, and more importantly, the preview season is about you guys. It's about you guys sort of internalizing the vision of Hope Brooklyn, those three pillars we talked about, internalizing those, buying into it, and then living it out. Um, I found this great quote that I loved, and I brought it up a couple weeks back, but I'm gonna put it up again. I don't know how to say this guy's name. I think it's Antoine de Saint-Exprey or something like that. French people, don't get mad at me, please. Um, but he says, if you wanna build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood. And don't assign them task and work. Rather, teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. That's what the preview season's about. We are planting a church. And to plant a church is not to assign task, but to hopefully gather around this idea that the gospel is the most compelling vision that we've ever tasted. That gospel community is something that is absolutely worth our entire lives. And so to, to help us with that, we've been going through a series called Vision. We have a vision statement, it's five sentences long, and we've been taking one sentence every week and discussing it, talking about it. And, and the reason being is to sort of create that, that culture among us, or the Greek word that we keep returning to is homothumadon. And homothumadon is a compound word it comes from homo, which means same, and thumas, which means desire, or intention, or passion. Put it together, hamathumadon means with one mind, with one desire, with one intention. That word is used 11 times in the Bible, all 11 times in the New Testament, and 10 of the 11 times come from the book of Acts. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar, Acts details the first church the first church plant, so to speak. So after Jesus does his work and he ascends, his disciples, among others, they start this new community. And 10 of the 11 times to describe this new community, uh, the author describes them as homothumadon. They have the same mind. They have the same intention. They have the same vision. 
That's what this series is about for us. We are taking um, the five sentences of our vision statement and we are talking about them, showing the gospel grounding for each one, where it comes from, why it's important for us, so that God can create hamathumadon amongst us. And as Nathan said, definitely make sure if you're in town, be here next Sunday, uh, because we're going to talk about tables, which are like our small groups, and we're going to have a chance to sign up for them. We're going to culminate the series. Um, It's going to be a really exciting day, so definitely try and be out here next Sunday if you can. But just to recap, our, uh, our vision statement for those who are here for the first time, it is this. Hope Brooklyn is a diverse community that eats together. At the table, we come face-to-face with Jesus and one another. Through a shared meal, authentic community, and the narrative of Jesus, we are transformed. We live lives of imperfect love and reckless generosity, engaging our neighborhoods in Brooklyn and beyond according to the gospel of grace. Because God invited us freely to his table, all are invited to ours. So we talked um, the first week about how Hope Brooklyn is, not that what we intend to do. The gospel does not tell us what to do. The gospel tells us who we are. The gospel tells us who God is, who Jesus is. And so we're saying that if this is God's doing, then God is telling Hope Brooklyn who we are. We are a diverse community that eats together. Our primary function of activity is to gather around the table. The reason being is because it it humbles us, it equalizes us, it humanizes us. And around the table, we come face to face with Jesus and one another. It it reveals Jesus. And then Josh talked about last week how through a shared meal and authentic community and the narrative of Jesus, these three things sort of conspiring together, it transforms us. And so we're going to look at the fourth sentence today, that we live lives of imperfect love and reckless generosity, engaging our neighborhoods in Brooklyn and beyond according to the gospel of grace. We live lives of imperfect love and reckless generosity, engaging our neighborhoods in Brooklyn and beyond according to the gospel of grace. This is actually the first time we get to a verb that broaches upon the imperative. It's the first time we get to a verb that sort of gives us movement. We live lives. Well, what kind of lives do we live? We live lives of imperfect love and reckless generosity. We live lives that engage our neighborhoods in Brooklyn and beyond according to the good news of grace. And sort of to to talk about every element of this, I want to go to John 21. So if you have your Bibles or your smartphones or eyes, can you look up on the screen? Um, We're going to read John 21. It's the last chapter in John's account of Jesus's ministry, the last chapter, and we're going to go 1 through 19. This is how it reads. Afterward, meaning after Jesus was raised from the dead, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, who was known as Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going to go out to fish. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. 
Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. Thanks for asking. And he said, throw your net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. Great suggestion. But when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. Who was counting those? (laughs) But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Now at first glance, this chapter might seem a stretch for our sentence of how we live lives of imperfect love and reckless generosity, engaging our neighborhoods in Brooklyn and beyond according to the gospel of grace. But I think within this chapter, there's every element of what's going on. And it starts with this. Now, Jesus is alive. He's raised from the dead. And the disciples are together. They're in a room, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And Peter says to the others, I'm gonna go fishing. Now, what you need to know, some of y'all might be aware, Peter was a fisherman before he was called by Jesus, three years ago. He was a fisherman, Jesus saw him in his nets among some of the other disciples and he said, hey, follow me. And he left his nets and he followed. So he's returning to what he knows, which is how to fish. So he says, I'm gonna go fishing. The disciples say, we'll come too. They go out that night and they catch nothing. It's important for us to recognize 
what state of mind we're finding the disciples in in this chapter. We are finding a group of wearied, exhausted, confused, disgraced disciples. This group, remember, the last time they were with Jesus was at the Last Supper. And he's telling them that you're all going to betray me. You're all going to flee. In fact, one of you, not all going to betray me, one of you is going to betray me, but you're all going to flee. And it's true. So the last time they saw Jesus, they were fleeing for their lives. This is a group struggling to come to terms with the implications of Jesus being alive. They know he died, but now he's not. What does this mean? This is a group struggling over their sense of failure because they know they did not live up to what it meant to be his disciples. This is a group who's exhausted and tired and disgraced. So they do what they know. They go fishing. Now, why is that important? It's important because this is the last chapter in John's gospel. He's ending his story. Jesus is finishing his ministry and he's about to hand off the baton and say, all right, disciples, now you go and continue this ministry. Now, if that's the case, you would expect the disciples to be primed and ready for this, right? Like a bell curve. So generally, if if disciples and Jesus, Jesus sort of breaks them down. He deconstructs them. But then he wants to reconstruct them, right? He wants to build them back up so that they're primed, they're ready, they're feeling strong, they're ready to continue his ministry. That's not what we see at all. We see the disciples tired and alone and feeling like failures. If anything, when they said yes to following Jesus, they entered into a relationship where over time, over these last three years, they just keep realizing more and more how broken they are. They're at rock bottom. They are disgraced by their betrayal, so much so that they return to their former way of life with no hope. Now this is vital for us guys. It's vital because this will relate to how we live, the lives we live, how we engage Brooklyn. Growth in Christ is a process of weakening. Growth in Christ is a process of weakening. You would expect, like, like, just to use the example, if I was gonna leave as pastor of Hope Brooklyn and y'all are gonna take over this, which it is a group effort, just, you know, but it's just for the sake of example. If I was gonna leave, I would wanna make sure that when I leave, y'all are ready, like y'all are bought into the vision, you understand the gospel, you're ready to live it out. You're primed. If we sort of transpose this to this example, I would leave when y'all are at rock bottom, which is what Jesus does. Growth in Christ, following Jesus, is a progressive weakening, a progressive realization of how broken and how much of a failure they are. So much so that they denied him and fled from him. What I'm trying to say is, you're not ready to go out and serve Jesus until you feel naked and exhausted and defeated. 
Or to put it another way, in no less terms, we cannot serve Jesus until we feel like complete failures. I know this is harsh. I know this is probably not a gospel that we've heard before, but this is exactly what John 21 is telling us. We cannot serve Jesus until we realize that we cannot serve Jesus. We cannot serve Jesus until we realize that we bring absolutely nothing to the table. So if God is quiet in your life, if your vision is thwarted, if you feel stuck, I would offer that maybe you haven't surrendered fully yet. Maybe you're not quite defeated yet. Maybe you're not at rock bottom. And the disciples don't wait. They, they go fishing and they catch nothing. Now, why is this important? Because the gospel of grace at its core is breaking us of all the ways we attempt to save ourselves. What Jesus was progressively leading his disciples forward in is the realization that they cannot do it their way. Their way, though it might seem logical, will actually end up in death. His way is the only way that leads to life. The gospel breaks us of all the ways that we attempt to save ourselves. We live in a world that is starving for justice. We live in a world that is starving for healing and for renewal. But if we don't feel like a complete failure, if we don't recognize that it's not up to us, then we will attempt to save the world outside of the way that Jesus already has, which is the cross. Our joy will become replaced by despair. Our love and justice will replace a crucified Jesus, and they are different. And we will refuse to wait, because how could God tolerate this for so long? What will happen if until we hit rock bottom is we will think we understand how to save the world outside of how Jesus already has? And we'll go fishing and we'll catch nothing. And so Jesus early in the morning is on the shore and they don't recognize him. And Jesus says to them, have you caught anything? No, they said. We'll throw your nets on the other side of the boat, and you will. Imagine how maddening that would be. This is my job. I'm doing this. You're on the shore. I don't know who you are, and you're telling me, oh, throw it on the other side of the boat. Cool. But they do, and they can barely haul in their nets. They're so full. And then they recognize him, and Peter freaks out and jumps into the water, because that's what Peter does. He's always good for a good freak out in these stories. And he swims to shore and Jesus tells them, bring some of the fish over. He has a fire already going with bread and fish on it and he says, come and have breakfast. Now when we talk about how to engage Brooklyn, we talk about the imperfect love and reckless generosity our lives should espouse. What Jesus is asking of us we must be entirely sure of the gospel of grace. That is the bedrock of which everything should bloom out of. What is the gospel of grace? The gospel of grace is simply this. Come and have breakfast after we've realized we're complete failures. The gospel of grace is recognizing all the ways I am utterly incapable 
of loving Jesus, of following him, of finding justice, of bringing about substantial change, and Jesus still looking me in the eyes and say, ah, now come and have breakfast. Remember, the last time these two groups interacted, Jesus interacted with his disciples. They had fled at his death. Peter had betrayed him three times. And yet his words to Peter are, again, come and have breakfast with me. Come and join me at breakfast. Jesus is unfazed by their disobedience. He's unfazed by their betrayal. He's unfazed that he caught them fishing again. Like they're at rock bottom. They're not getting it. He is unfazed and continuously inviting them to breakfast. The gospel of grace responds to the betrayal of his best friends with an invitation to breakfast. And we all have to experience that rock bottom moment. For me, it was college. I grew up in a Christian tradition where I believed that uh, the gospel was based on my moral record. That if I was pious enough, if I avoided certain actions and embraced others, that that was how God loved me. But what is that? That's simply me thinking that it's up to me. And in college, I did what many people did. I grew disillusioned with the church. I grew disillusioned with Christianity. I grew disillusioned with myself. And I entered into ways of life that were destructive. And I can't even describe to you how many times I would wake up one morning hungover, feeling with tremendous shame and guilt. And I'd have a text on my phone from a friend saying, hey man, you were on my heart. I just wanted to send you this song or this video. I would watch it or listen to it. And the love of Jesus would just bring me down. I'd be on my face. And I would think, what, how? Lord, did you not, did you not see? Of course I did. I've always been able to see. You were the one who didn't see. But now you do. That you bring nothing to this relationship. You have nothing to offer me. The gospel of grace is that it's 100% my invitation to you to have breakfast. I had to learn that my moral record would not save myself. It would not save the world. Only Jesus' words, only Jesus' cross could do that. And there's an interesting dichotomy. Um, you might have read this before it's, or heard it. Uh, it came from a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany during the 30s and through the rise of, of the Third Reich in Nazi Germany. And he spoke out because he was very concerned about the ways that the German church was capitulating um, to, to Nazi Germany. And he sort of proposed these two ideas of grace that he saw happening in Germany. And, and I find it very prophetic because it's a similar trend that we could find in the church in America today. And these two ideas are called cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace and costly grace. <clears throat> cheap grace for Bonhoeffer is grace as presupposition. Cheap grace is grace as presupposition. It is the mortal enemy of the church, he says. The world finds in this church a cheap cover-up for its sins, for which it shows no remorse and from which it has even less desire to be set free. Cheap grace is thus denial of God's living word. You could find cheap grace epitomized in this line. Um, 
And it's a line that you might hear and be like, oh, I believe that. I do as well. And when it arose, it was actually trying to communicate a truth. But if it's not careful, it communicates uh, the wrong idea. It communicates cheap grace. And, and the line is this. God loves you just as you are. God loves you just as you are. Friends, I know what we're trying to get at, but that's not true. God doesn't love you just as you are. God loves you right where you are. Today, where you are. That's like saying a, a, a mother who has a son who's an addict and he's in the throes of addiction. Would the mother say, I love my son just as he is? Of course not. But the mother would say, I love my son right where he is, this very day. He can't, it doesn't matter what he does. I will always love my son. I love him right where he is, but I don't love him just as he is. I want him back. I want addiction gone. I want him back at home. Cheap grace is grace as presupposition, or this diagram that uh, I sort of tried to design. It's very simple because I'm not good at PowerPoint designs. Um, but essentially, it's a, a line. I think we got it, we'll put it up. Oh, we'll keep going. One more, one more. There we go. That's cheap grace. Yeah, you're glad, yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, I'm gonna stick with my day job. That's cheap grace. We come in and we say, God loves you because he made you. It's grace's presupposition. And hear me, God does love you because he made you. That is true. What it's missing is the story about Jesus and his cross, which tells us how God is able to love us by which door he's able to reconcile us back to himself. Costly grace is grace as conclusion, Bonhoeffer says. Yeah, that was such a letdown, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Costly grace is grace as conclusion and invitation to obedience. It's grace as command. Notice, when Jesus comes to people in the gospels, he never says, hey, I love you right where you are. Or, I'm sorry, he never says, I love you just as you are. What does he always do? He invites them to follow him. He gives them a command. Follow me. Let the dead bury their dead, you follow me. Throw your nets on the other side. Costly grace is always an invitation to obedience. It's always a command. It is costly, Bonhoeffer says, because it caused the discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace because thereby it makes them live. Twice the call went out to Peter, follow me. It was Jesus' first and last word to the disciple. In between all that, Peter had to recognize that he was utterly incapable in his own power to follow. Peter had to learn he knew nothing about the world, nothing about God's form of justice, nothing about grace, about God's ways. He had to learn what Isaiah said, that God's ways are not our ways. And if we think that we understand God's ways, we'll actually ultimately be trying to save ourselves and be disobedient. Costly grace is follow me. Jesus never tells a person, you're good, I love you. He always tells them, now come follow me. So the diagram, I'm, I'm returning to it, guys. We're gonna make this work. 
Uh, the costly grace one. There it is. <laughs> That's costly grace. A life lived on self-reliance, a life refusing to surrender, a life of addicted to self, and then we hear the story of God's pursuit of you and of me and of the world. We hear the story of the cross and we recognize that the one who hung on that cross is alive and he's looking us in the eyes saying, now follow me. There's an invitation to discipleship and to breakfast. Cheap grace is you're good where you are because God made you and loves you. Costly grace is follow me and I'll show you who you desperately want to be. The gospel of grace is Jesus' continual invitation to surrender what we think we know by following him. No matter how poorly we do it, and we will do it poorly, hence imperfect love, and we'll get to that in a bit. No matter how illogical it seems, like throw your nets on the other side of the boat, even though I've been fishing all night. It doesn't matter what the act. What matters is Jesus is the one who told me to do it. That changes everything. We don't join Jesus at breakfast because God loves us. We join Jesus at breakfast because Jesus invited us. Or as George MacDonald says, I believe that no man is ever condemned for any sin except one, that he will not leave his sins behind and come out of them and be the child of him who is his father. Now I know that's a, that's a church word that some of us may balk at, sin, right? That's really what we're getting at. What is sin? Sin, uh, it, it's been sort of talked about as actions, bad actions, but that's such a shallow understanding. Sin is not bad actions. Sin is who we are. Sin is a virus that infects every one of us, and we all experience it. Sin is that, um, that tendency, that, that propensity to self-destruction. And you all know what I'm talking about. On those days where you're lonely or sad or angry, on those days where stuff should be okay, but it's not okay. On those days where you just want to despair and you just kind of want to be like, just to self-destruct. And not only self-destruct, but I'm taking all of you down with me. What is that? That, that virus. That is sin. Which means we are unable to look at the world the way God sees the world. Which is how he's trying to change that through his command of follow me. The gospel of grace begins with a recognition of how broken I am. Of how broken I am. Of how broken this world is and that even my best attempts to remedy this world will end in doing more harm than good. And the gospel of grace ends with come and have breakfast. Nevertheless, though you betrayed me, Though you fled at my death, still come and have breakfast. Which is why the disciples must be brought to absolute rock bottom. Because anything outside of that, there'll still be the smallest amount of self-belief. But when you hit rock bottom and you know it's all Jesus. 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 I have nothing else. Then he can begin to retrain and build you back up. Then the virus is expunged and we can see the world with new eyes. So if, if that's the gospel of grace, 
of recognizing that I can't serve Jesus until I recognize how broken I am, that I am a complete failure. If that's the gospel of grace by which we engage this world, engage the neighborhoods of Brooklyn, then it also helps us live lives with reckless generosity. And, and we've talked about this before, and generosity takes many forms. Essentially, at its core, it, it's a worldview. It's a way of seeing the world that says, because everything is from Jesus, how could I hold onto anything of my, as my own? So it's generosity of time and resources and self, but I wanna talk about another form of generosity. Generosity of spirit. Generosity of spirit. I don't know if you were alive during this last election cycle, but we are very polarized in this country. We are polarized in every single way, in these systems and viewpoints. Um, and to step into the fray at all is to take a punch. To step into the fray at all is to take a punch. I remember this came very true to me um, a couple years back. So a couple years back, that's when um, uh, Michael Brown was killed and the Black Lives Matter movement started coming into public uh, knowledge and awareness and sort of conversations about white privilege were happening. And that's when I was first confronted with this idea of privilege and it shook me. And so I was like, oh my goodness, we need to do something. What do we do? And so there were some articles I was reading and people I was talking to where they were saying, this is the time um, when the white leaders, the white pastors need to speak out, need to use their privilege you know, to, to speak out. I was like, cool, all right, let's, we're gonna do this. And so I did. And then I'd read an article where it was like, this is the time where the white leaders need to stay quiet and listen. Cool. <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> Tell me what to do. The point is this. The system is so broken, the world is so broken, to step out toward justice at all is to take a punch. It is. But when we know the gospel of grace, when we know that the invitation is to all, no matter where they are, we can actually step faithfully into repairing the system, seeking a better way. We can step faithfully into taking that punch because the invitation to breakfast is so much louder. Perhaps, perhaps reckless generosity in this day and age Reckless generosity for Hope Brooklyn is a generosity that refuses to condemn a person, not an action or a system, but a person. That refuses bitterness, that refuses cynicism, and refuses rage. Perhaps the reckless generosity chooses to see by a different lens. Perhaps reckless generosity rejects impatience and rejects the salvation of the world outside of Jesus' cross and the path of discipleship. Perhaps reckless generosity chooses joy, chooses hope, chooses invitation, chooses not to be defined by polarization, but actually invites both to the same table. Chooses confession of sin and acknowledgement of guilt, but not despair. Because remember, the gospel of grace starts with recognizing how much I am a complete failure before the cross of Jesus. Perhaps reckless generosity chooses sacrifice over self-indulgence and truth over self-protection. 
And perhaps reckless generosity in this day and age is an invitation to breakfast for those on both ends of the spectrum. Keep in mind, in Jesus' 12 disciples were both Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. And Josh talked about tax collectors last, year, or last week. Tax collectors were Jews living in Jewish territory who were conscripted by Rome to receive taxes of their people. But not only did they take normal taxes, they also extorted their own people. They were um, the haves in that system in the first century. Everyone, Jews hated the tax collectors. And Jesus goes to Matthew and says, hey, you, follow me. And he left it all and did. And in his disciples was Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were actually a political party. It's not an adjective describing uh, a way of life. It's a political party. The Zealots were those, think in our system, far left. They were anarchists. They were like, nothing's going to work until we just break the whole system down and start over. And Jesus goes to Simon the Zealot and goes, and you follow me. What do you think those first dinners were like where the tax collector sitting beside Simon? What's up, man? What's up? That is the third way. Because for both Simon and Matthew, Jesus is saying to each of them, you bring nothing to this relationship. You know nothing of the world. You know nothing of the cross. And see, these disciples, they thought they understood what Jesus was doing. And with each passing day and month, they recognized that Jesus' mission was about something different. Jesus was overturning the system. He was overturning the empire, but not the way they wanted. Remember, once Jesus was killed and resurrected, Rome was still there. He overturned a different empire, the empire of death. Rome's come and go. He was about something deeper and inviting all to recognize this third way, this third option. So when we engage neighborhoods in Brooklyn and beyond according to this gospel of grace and with this reckless generosity, we stand with the oppressed and the marginalized. Make no mistake, God is a God of justice. Injustice, he cannot stand. We stand with the oppressed and we treat with dignity and we take up their cause and we be their voice. We pray for refugees and we do what little we can to support and we speak out against injustice, and we work to remedy the systems of injustice, but we do it not through rage, but through joy, through invitation to the marginalized to recognize that they too are complete failures before Jesus, just as I am. And, and to, to engage neighborhoods according to the gospel of grace is to challenge the oppressors, those benefiting by the systems, with love, so they recognize that by these oppressive systems, they are missing out on the life that God has for them too. To invite them to breakfast. And it's to challenge ourselves and to recognize that inside all of us is both oppressed and oppressor. That we are both part of the problem and able to work toward a solution. And we won't lose heart. Because the gospel of grace as conclusion, as invitation, the gospel of grace as it's all up to Jesus or nothing else matters, covers all this. The gospel of grace brings Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector to the same table 
and changes their stories. I love this quote from Leslie Newbigin. Newbigin was a, a British pastor who went to India for 40, 50 years, spent his entire life in India, returned to England and recognized that he should have stayed in England the whole time. And he says this, he goes, it is one of the most pressing tasks of the immediate future that rediscovers a doctrine of redemption that sees the cross not as the banner of the oppressed against the oppressor, but as the action of God that brings both judgment and redemption for all who will accept it, yet does not subvert the proper struggle for the measure of justice that is possible in a world of sinful human beings. The cross is not about this system at all. The cross is about a brand new kingdom, a kingdom in the midst of the old kingdom, a third way. It's not this or that, it's a third way that invites all to breakfast, that pursues justice and equality, but not at the expense of losing joy or hope or love because we know the story. We know what Jesus has promised. He's defeated the final empire, which is death. I know this is not necessarily a feel-good message today. I'm basically calling us all to further surrender, further yielding of what we think we know to the story, further yielding of what we think we understand to Jesus' words, further sacrifice. But how? How do I know that, you might be wondering. Like, where in this story does it sort of explain that that's all Jesus is asking of us? Well, after Jesus invited the disciples to breakfast, they ate. And you have to remember, that was probably an awkward breakfast because they're sitting with this guy who they pledged their allegiance to and they deserted him at his death. So they're eating breakfast and I imagine Jesus just humming away like it's nothing, you know, just unfazed. And then he has this conversation with Peter. Now Peter was marked out with a, another betrayal. I don't know if you know the story, but at the Last Supper, before Jesus died, he says, one of you is gonna betray me. And they're all like, no, never. And Peter goes, Lord, even if all fall away, I never will. And Jesus looks at him and goes, oh, Peter, I know you mean so well. I know you mean so well. But actually, before the rooster crows twice, you're gonna deny me three times. You need to recognize how absolutely bankrupt you are. You need to recognize how deep the virus of sin goes. Don't worry. I'm gonna take care of it, but you need to recognize it. And guess what happens? He denies him three times. And in fact, the story you know, rubs salt in the wound because the second and third time, it was the question of a slave girl that caused him to deny him. It wasn't some rich aristocratic Roman centurion or something. It was a slave girl. In that first century, slaves obviously were at the bottom of the totem pole, the social totem pole, Women were at the bottom of the social totem pole. A slave girl, not a slave woman, a slave girl was at the absolute bottom. 
And she looks at Peter and goes, aren't you one of his? And he is so much a coward like myself. He goes, I don't even know the guy. He calls down curses. A slave girl was what it took to reveal to him how bankrupt he was. He was asked three times, do you know him? Do you know him? I don't know this guy. I don't know this guy. The rooster crowed twice. And in one account, it says that he saw Jesus being pulled away and they made eye contact. And Peter wept bitterly. So you know at this breakfast, Peter is remembering and he's saying, oh, please don't bring it up. Please don't bring it up. Please don't bring it up. And they eat the entire breakfast. Oh, suspense. And then Jesus turns to Peter and he goes, hey, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What is the these? Scholars have debated what this these is. More than what? I think it's intentionally ambiguous. Insert into the these whatever it is that your heart holds on to. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than fishing? Do you love me more than your self-reliance? Do you love me more than your way of life? Do you love me more than your sense of justice? Do you love me more than vengeance? Do you love me more than rage, than mother or father? Do you love me more than your job? Do you love me more than yourself? Insert whatever you need. Do you love me more than X? And he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Now, what's fascinating about this that you wouldn't see in the English is the Greek has a more expansive vocabulary. And so the word love, they have different words that connote different forms of love. So when, when Jesus asked him the first time, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He uses the Greek word agape, which you might be familiar with. It is the highest form of love. It is love as sacrifice. It is love as pure self-emptying. It is God's form of love. He goes, it's almost as if he's saying, hey, Simon, remember when you said that you would never betray me like I would never betray you? Do you, do you, do you how did that work out for you? Do you love me that way? He says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And he uses philo. Philo is where we get Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Philo uh, connotes this idea of broken love. It is, it is below agape love. It's as if Peter is saying, Lord, the subtext of this conversation is they're going back to the night he betrayed him. Lord, you saw it. You're not, I know you're bringing it up in this way. You know I don't love you the way you love me. And so we ask him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you agape me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, phileo. Twice now. And then he asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But that third time, he doesn't say agape. He says phileo. He's saying, look, I know you can't love me the way I love you. You thought I was asking you for that. I never was. He came down to Peter's level and said, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he asked him the third time, do you love me? 
He was grieved because the three times Jesus asked him, do you love me, corresponded to the three times Peter denied him. And the third time Jesus asked, do you love me, he didn't say agape. And Peter so desperately wanted to agape Jesus. He so desperately wanted to do right. But he didn't recognize that even his best efforts will do wrong. And Jesus is saying, you had to learn it the hard way, but do you phileo me? Do you love me brokenly? Do you love me imperfectly? And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. The disciples that Jesus is after are those who have the same heart as Peter here. Who those who desire good things, desire what Jesus desires for the world, for others, but recognizes that we are not the ones to bring it about. We can work toward a proper measure of justice, recognizing that ultimate justice will only be established when Christ returns. We say, Lord, I want to agape you. I want to give you all I have, but even my best efforts, as Paul says, are dirty rags. They pale. I will stumble. I will fall. I will probably betray you again if I get scared, which I will. And Jesus is saying, perfect. Love me with that form of imperfect love. He's saying the gospel of grace, friends, is that you bring nothing to this relationship. But will you still come to breakfast nevertheless? I'll do the rest. I am doing it. Let me teach you. Will you love me brokenly? Will you continue to seek renewal? Will you continue to choose joy over despair? Will you continue to pursue justice for both oppressed and oppressor? And at the point of despair that Jesus' words to you are, Will you love me right there with that humility, with that brokenness of spirit? I was never asking for anything more, just right there, imperfectly. For then you'll remember that grace is my doing alone. It's my party and not yours. And joy will determine your work, not despair or discouragement. Will we live lives of imperfect love? and reckless generosity, reckless invitation, engaging our neighborhoods in Brooklyn and beyond according to the costly gospel of grace. Will you pray with me?